are listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor and teaching elder, Adam Vinson. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to once again be in verses 5 through 10. We looked at this passage last week, kind of on a surface level. We taught it a little bit differently, like you guys... Um, Try to learn some stuff on your own before I taught it to you. So we looked at some preliminary discussion on this passage, but today I want to get a little bit more deeper into it, help us to understand exactly what's going on in this passage and what we need to take away from it as a church body. So let's start in verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read through verse 10, and then we'll look and see what the Holy Spirit has for us today. Verse 1, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing, enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now we said this first portion of chapter 1 that we've looked at, it is Paul's continuing instruction to the Thessalonica church. He wrote First Thessalonians. He gets a report back from whoever delivered the letter. He's now writing further instruction, and he begins this introduction Praising God for answered prayer. Praising God because he had prayed for their faith to increase, he had prayed for their love to increase, and that's exactly what he's getting reports back on. That their faith is increased, their love is increasing, he's praising God for his answered prayers. He's giving credit and glory and honor due to God for what he has done in the life of this church. He praises them for their, or praises God acknowledges their endurance in their suffering. And he says this is evidence of their salvation, basically, that it's fruit of their salvation. They are truly saved because it's only supernatural. The only explanation for their endurance in the suffering and persecution that they're going through, the only explanation for their endurance is that they are saved, that the Holy Spirit is indwelling them, that they are new creations, it's a supernatural endurance. The only thing that makes sense. Every, if they weren't saved, they would have they would have walked away. They would have walked away uh, from the faith. And so he's saying, because you're still following Jesus, it's clear testimony that you're saved. When we look at the parable of the sower and the seed, and how uh, if, if someone's not truly saved, they respond to the gospel initially, but if they're not truly saved, persecution squashes it out, and they stop following Jesus. Verse, seven, or verse 6, Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. Alright, we said that uh, 
This church is obviously enduring persecution. He said that um, there's a spiritual battle going on when a believer goes through persecution. Satan's goal is to discourage us, to make our faith completely contingent on God's physical blessings in our life. That if God's taking care of us, if things are going good in our life, then absolutely we trust in God. That's what Satan wants. So that if Satan can get permission from God to take away those blessings, then our faith crumbles and our uh, our claim to salvation goes away. God's goal is to strengthen our faith in the midst of suffering so that our faith is shown to others. Whether it's lost people, whether it's other Christians, whether it's Satan, whether it's demons, God wants our faith shown to others. We look at the conversation between uh, God and Satan in the, in the uh, situation with Job. The Satan said, of course Job trusts you. You've done everything good for him. Everything breaks his way. Of course he would trust in you. Indicating that Satan really believed that those things were taken away, that Job's faith would crumble. I don't think Satan would have entered into that interaction. He would have not entered into that discussion had he really thought Job would stay faithful. So God, a lot of times, will allow us to suffer to demonstrate the validity of our faith. So we talked about that uh, here at the beginning of chapter 1. That's exactly what's going on here. That God is allowing them to go through this. Their testimony is being shown to be true. And other churches are hearing about it. Last week we looked at, um, or we also said that in order to allow God's goal to be accomplished, where we make it through suffering appropriately, that we have to trust in two things. We trust in God's goodness. That Romans 8, 28, 29 tell us that God has favorable intent for us. That even if we go through bad times, the end goal is that he wants to make us like Jesus. So he uses good times and bad times. The end goal is good for us. The end goal is good for us. And so we can see bad times in our life as good as well because they are working us towards that favorable goal that he has for us. And we often need to trust in God's justice. And that's what we think about last week and we continue to look at God's justice this week. A couple of things we wrote down last week as initial application. Number one, endurance serves as evidence of salvation. We've already said that this morning. Our endurance in the faith shows that we are truly saved. It's evidence and proof of our salvation. Number two, God doesn't miss injustice. This passage clearly tells us that God doesn't uh, turn his eye to injustice. He doesn't overlook injustice. He doesn't miss injustice. That he will bring justice at the appropriate time. When Jesus returns, relief will come to the saints. And when Jesus returns, vengeance will come to the disobedient. That's clear from this passage. Number five, the punishment for unbelief is eternal and tragic. Talks about them being away from the presence of God. The reward for belief is glory and joy. We become part of the kingdom of God for eternity. He said that it seems to, to all happen together at the same time on that day, we're told, when Jesus returns. Number eight, how God judges in the end will be right. We can trust that a good God will judge rightly. That reward and punishment will be right. Will be right. And then lastly, he said Jesus is the one coming to judge. And we look at some Old Testament passages that attribute the right to judge to Yahweh. We look at the New Testament, how it's attributed now to Jesus, which links Jesus in the New Testament back to the God of the Old Testament. They're the one and the same. The triune God. Jesus is the one that returns to judge. He's not an angel. He's not a prophet. He's not a teacher given that authority. He's God coming with his authority. In your notes for this week, I want to look at this passage through a series of questions. The what, the when, the who, the why. 
or what the wind or who the wine. So we start off with the what. This passage is about coming judgment. The what is coming judgment. There's coming judgment on this earth, and this passage clearly reveals that to us. The question is, how is God's judgment against the righteous and the disobedient right? God's judgment is coming, and the theme of this judgment is justice. It's, it's, it's God coming and doing what's right. So how is God's judgment right? How is it right towards the obedient? How is it right towards the disobedient? And Paul gives us an explanation for how we can see both the coming judgment and how it's just judgment. I put a note in my notes, and I put it in yours as well. The first coming is a rescue mission. When Jesus comes in the manger, which we celebrated just about a month ago, when Jesus comes the first time, what we traditionally call the first coming of Jesus, it's a rescue mission. Notice Jesus doesn't come in all his glory like he says he'll come at the second coming. He comes with that veil. He empties himself. He comes in the form of a servant. He comes in the form of a man. He comes in the form of a baby. He comes with the purpose of rescue on his mind. It's a rescue mission. If the Jesus that we read about in this passage had come at the first coming, we would have all been devoured in his wrath. There would have been no salvation and no rescue. The first coming is a rescue mission. The second coming is war. The second coming that we have described for us in Scripture is war. And I thought of a, a similar situation. We see a rescue mission happen in the first coming. If we go back to Joshua chapter 2, there's a first coming where the uh, Israelites send out two spies into Jericho. Joshua sends out two spies, and there's a rescue mission that happens. Rahab and her family are saved. They respond to these two that come. They don't come in all the glory of Israel. They don't come with the army. They don't come ready to pass judgment. They come and scout everything out. And, and, and as a surprise to them, there's actually a group of people that want to be saved by the God of Israel. And then that second coming, when Joshua leads the children of Israel into battle, everyone else is wiped away. But we're told that Rahab and her family are saved. It's similar for Jesus' first coming and second coming. He comes the first time. He comes the first time and scouts it out and actually brings people into a relationship with him that will now be saved when he comes with his army from heaven. So the first coming is a rescue mission. The second coming is war. In your notes there, our suffering, talking about how God's judgment is, is right against the righteous, our suffering is part of God's plan, God's right plan to make us worthy of his kingdom. Our suffering is part of God's plan to make us worthy. To make us worthy of His kingdom. Acts 14.22 Verse 21 When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is Paul going back to his church plants, going to each church plant and reminding them it's through tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. This is part of God's right plan for us as believers to be made worthy for his kingdom. Second Timothy 3.12 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Promise to us in Scripture. The normal response, though, for us, when we go through difficult times, the normal response when, when things aren't going our way, the normal response is for us to react by saying that maybe God doesn't care. That maybe God doesn't care what's going on. God's missing this. Where's God at in this? And the right response, according to Scripture, is that God absolutely cares. That God absolutely cares. When we go through difficult times, it's the opposite of God not caring. It's the fact that God cares and wants to make you worthy of His kingdom. So when we go through persecutions or tribulations or trials or difficulties, our reaction needs to be based on what Scripture says. Man, God cares for me. I'm one of the children. I'm one of the children. This, this is an indicator to me that I'm being made worthy of His kingdom. That I'm being made worthy of His kingdom. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through its tested, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This passage is very similar to what we're looking at in chapter 5, verse 10, that as we end up on the other side of suffering, there's praise and honor and glory to Jesus at his return. And we'll see that as we get through this passage together today. The indication to us, though, is that we are saved because we go through suffering. We are saved, and the evidence for that is our suffering. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, or after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an embodiment. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The indication here that if we're truly saved, we will endure to the end. Which brings up the, the idea of relationship of faith and works. I mean, if we're saved, if we're saved, what's all this talk about being made worthy of the kingdom? What's all this talk about having to prove our faith, to show our faith on that day? And I heard a commentator illustrating like this. It's like purchasing a ticket to a movie or to a football game or something like that in advance. And then showing up and having to have that ticket to get in. And you could ask the question, what is it that gets you in? Is it the money that was paid for the ticket or the actual ticket? And technically it's both. It's both. What gets you in is the payment. The payment for that ticket. But when you show up, the ticket is an indication to whoever's collecting that the payment was paid. And that's how our salvation works with good works. That we are in, we are brought into relationship with Christ through faith in Jesus' work. 
But on that day, it's our good works, it's our endurance that shows we were truly brought into the relationship with Jesus. We don't earn our way into heaven with good works, but our good works are an indicator to Christ that, yep, we really got it. The Holy Spirit really is inside of us. It's an indication to everyone else, through our endurance, that we are truly believers. So it's that, it's that relationship like buying a movie ticket, presenting the ticket. The payment's what get us in. The ticket is an indicator to everybody else that the payment has been taken. And for us, that's how our faith and works go together. Both are necessary. Both are necessary. James tells us that faith with, without the works is not true faith. It's not genuine faith. He's not trying to teach a works-based salvation. He's trying to say, if you're truly saved, if you're truly saved, you will endure. You'll endure through difficult times. You won't walk away. You won't fade away like the sower in the seed parable. So coming to the righteous, if we're talking about what comes to the righteous, it's relief. It's relief. The promise here in this passage is that we suffer now and relief comes. We suffer now, but relief is on the way. Secondly, God delays judgment now, giving opportunity for unbelievers and disobedient to repent. His eternal punishment, God's eternal punishment is right because of His holiness and the awfulness of sin. God's eternal punishment is right. It's right because of His holiness and the awfulness of sin. So if we're talking about how can God's judgment be right for the, the disobedient and for the obedient, we're seeing that God's judgment against the obedient is right. That they are truly saved. And so when He allows them to enter into glory with Him on that day, it's right. Because they've been saved, they've shown their salvation through their endurance. But God's eternal punishment for the disobedient is right also. It's right also because of His holiness and because of how awful, how awful sin really is. A lot of people want to read into this passage that unbelievers will be annihilated on this day. If we go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His might. A lot of people want to say that this is annihilation here. That when Jesus returns, yes, believers will be honored and glorified and get new bodies and they'll go live in the new earth forever. Unbelievers will just cease to exist. That they'll go away. They'll be done. They'll be away from the presence of the Lord. Um, and they'll just be destroyed for their disobedience. But I think there's some indicators here that we've got to pay attention to. One is that the punishment here is being away from the presence of the Lord. Which to me indicates there's some type of consciousness about being away from the presence of the Lord. But if we go back to Isaiah chapter 66, I think Paul borrows some of the truth from the prophet Isaiah and brings it into this discussion with the Thessalonians. In Isaiah chapter 66... Verse 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord 
shall be many. You see him coming, and you see him coming with fire, which is very consistent with what we have in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So Paul is borrowing some of the language here of the prophet Isaiah, so we can trust that he is, it seems that he is, he is referring back to this passage. Now if we skip down to verse 24, talking about the end result of these that will be judged by God's fury, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Revelation 14.11 gives us another passage where it seems that this judgment, this punishment, is eternal for these people, and it's a conscious torment. Revelation 14.11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. No rest. I mean, that's the indication of 2 Thessalonians 1, that rest and relief comes to believers, and the exact opposite comes to unbelievers. I think we have to see here that it's more than just death. You don't exist anymore. You're annihilated. You don't get to be a part of the new earth. It seems that there's a very real, conscious, eternal punishment for unbelievers. But how can that be right? How can that be good? If God is good and loving, how can He issue out eternal punishment? You want to drop this definition down? Hell is the eternal, conscious punishment of the wicked. Hell is the eternal, conscious punishment of the wicked. And I have people ask me all the time, how can a good God, how can a loving God let somebody burn in hell for eternity for a short amount of life of sin? How, how, does, that, how does that equal the punishment? How does the crime equal the punishment? And that got me to thinking how in our minds we typically react to a crime and determine what the punishment should be. I read recently in, in the newspaper about a uh, police officer in, I think it was in Atlanta. She was... Responding to a accident, and she showed up at the scene, got out of her car, was directing other cars, and she was struck and killed by a drunk driver. There was no skid marks. I mean, this drunk driver didn't even try to stop. Uh, no knowledge that she was even there, and struck her and killed her. And they were in the article. They were talking about some of her coworkers, some of her family, because uh, this happened a year ago, and they issued punishment for the drunk driver and gave her 16 years in prison for uh, killing this person. And, and they were asking whether or not the punishment fit the crime. And, and time after time, the people I interviewed said, "I wish it was longer. It needs to be longer. Uh, what she did, this, this deserves a greater punishment." So we have that kind of built-in mentality that we examine a crime and we say, what what would deserve what, what punishment is deserved? What punishment is deserved? And so my question that I then asked myself was, if we're saying that this doesn't deserve eternal punishment, what crime would deserve eternal conscious punishment? If offending a holy God doesn't deserve that, is there anything that would deserve that? And what we've got to realize is that anytime we think that eternal punishment, if that's what Scripture reveals, and I believe it does, anytime we look at that and say, God can't be good and allow someone to be in hell for eternity when they only committed a little bit of lifetime of sin, that we don't fully understand the being that's been offended. And we don't understand the depth of the offense. 
These people understood the depth of the offense. You took a loved one of ours, and you deserve more than 16 years. We loved her. We treasured her. She was a special person in our life. You deserve to be away from society for longer than 16 years. When we look at Scripture and say, that's not right. God can't, God can't send people to hell for eternity. We don't understand His holiness. And we don't understand the depth of sin against Him. It's right. It's right. Paul describes his punishment as eternal, conscious, away from Jesus' presence. And this theme of this passage is God's justice, that his judgment is right. And we can trust that even if it doesn't logically make sense to us, that we can err on the side of, and I just go, I don't understand God's holiness in that. I don't have an appreciation for God's holiness in that. I don't understand the depth of sin enough yet. Because I'm still wrestling with how this can be good. But sometimes like that, when we trust Scripture and say, it has to be good, it has to be right, it has to be appropriate, because God reveals it that way. I think it's interesting, too, in Scripture, a lot of commentators say that uh, Paul is describing an eye-for-an-eye principle here, that these people are being persecuted and afflicted, and so God is going to bring persecution and affliction on the unbelievers. He's going to turn the tables. We see glimpses of this in Scripture. It's not that God just completely overlooks injustice for all time. We see glimpses in Scripture where people are being unjust and God responds with justice in an eye-for-an-eye type of format. Think about Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Pharaoh gets concerned that Israel's getting too big, and so his response is, let's kill all their babies. Let's kill all their baby boys. Let's strike them down. Let's get rid of them. Throw them in the Nile. Throw them, throw them to the crocodiles. If we can stop the, the growth of the males, then we don't have to worry about them overthrowing our nation. He kills babies and he drowns babies. God responds. God responds and issues the same type of justice towards him. The very last plague, God begins to rip their baby boys from the Egypt. God says, I'm not going to let this go unnoticed. You take my kids' babies, I'll take your kids' babies. Or I'll take your, I'll take your, your people's babies. You drown my babies, I'll drown your army. And you see that when the Egyptians flee into the desert to chase after Israel, God makes sure every last one of them is in the Red Sea before it comes back to them. God brings justice. He responds to injustice that he sees. Haman, in the story of um, Esther, Haman has a hatred and a jealousy towards Mordecai, an Israelite who will not worship him, who will not submit to him. So Haman concocts this plan to, to find a way to, to, to hang Mordecai. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of Mordecai. I'm going to kill Mordecai. We're going to kill all the Israelites because I hate this guy so much. He plots and plots and plots. And in God's sovereignty, God already has Esther in place. Esther's made known about this. She comes to the king. The decree is altered so that Israelites aren't going to be killed. Haman is ultimately hanged on the same gallows that he wanted to become Mordecai. God says, this is injustice. I'll respond with appropriate justice. The Persians, I told my sixth graders this this week, the Persians wanted to, to, uh, to kill or to get rid of Daniel. Daniel, which is so unique because Daniel was an Israelite, brought into the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he... Um, he has this crazy party that just gets a little out of hand to where they go get the, the, the holy vessels of the Israelite temple and they begin to use them in their, in their party, this big keg bash that they have where they start worshiping false gods. 
And then you get the writing on the wall with the hand that says your kingdom is done. The Persians invade that night and they take over. Babylonian Empire becomes Persian Empire. The unique thing is that Daniel is immediately put into third position in that new empire. That's not, that's not common. When a new kingdom comes in, you get rid of old leadership and you bring in your own leadership. Not in the case of Daniel. Daniel is elevated to a high position of authority. And the Persian people are jealous about it. And they say, we've got to catch Daniel doing something. They look at his work ethic. They can't find anything on the job to tattle on him about. They make up a law. You can't pray to anybody but Darius. Uh, Daniel continues to be faithful, praise to his God. They say, Darius, you've got to go in the lion's den. That's the law. Daniel's saved from the lion's den. These guys and all their families thrown into the same lion's den. Injustice, God responds with real justice. He always responds appropriately. It's appropriate measures that God takes to injustice that he sees. The Jews. The Jews killed Jesus. They killed Jesus to protect their religion. Jesus shows up and claims to be a Messiah that they don't want. They want a Messiah that's here to abolish the Roman Empire. Jesus shows up as a servant, willing to lay down his life. The Jews killed Jesus to protect Judaism. And it's only a few years later that God responds by killing Judaism. The temple is destroyed in 87, like 30 years after Jesus ascends back to heaven. What they wanted to protect, God comes in and says, nope, it's done with. Anybody that follows Judaism today can't truly follow it because there's no temple. There's nowhere to offer sacrifices. God always responds with appropriate justice. We see glimpses of that now. 2 Thessalonians gives us the hope that it will happen to the fullness and appropriate measure when Jesus returns. So coming to the wicked, coming to the righteous, we've got relief. Coming to the wicked, we've got things like affliction, flaming fire, vengeance, suffering, punishment, destruction. Affliction, flaming fire, vengeance, suffering, punishment. Destruction. These are all words used in our text today. And we looked at last week, I think, to, to reject... People who reject greater knowledge will receive a greater punishment. And we looked at some of those passages last week. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if hell's hotter for some than others. But I think we can trust that God will respond appropriately to the amount of knowledge that's been rejected. So you've got someone overseas who's never heard of Jesus, never seen a Bible, doesn't even have it in his language. He's still accountable, as we saw last week in Romans 1, 2, and 3. But Jesus indicates his punishment will be less than for those who grew up in church hearing the gospel day in and day out and rejected it. A greater rejection of knowledge deserves a greater punishment. Jesus taught that and Scripture reveals that. How that looks, how that plays out, I don't know for sure. But it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus is a fair judge, a right judge, a good judge. Before we transition into the wind, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives us a good reminder about this day in verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and as innocent as dust. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you would speak or what you are to say, but what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus promises tribulation and persecution to his followers. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. But truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Verse 26. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Jesus says, don't fear this. Don't worry about this because nothing's going to be covered up. Everything will be revealed on that day. Everything hidden will not, will not be, that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you have whispered, proclaim on the housetop. Do not fear those who kill the body, but do not fear the kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in heaven. Jesus reminds us that any type of difficulty we experience here on this earth is nothing to be compared to the one who can punish both body and soul in hell, referring to himself. It's Jesus' call for us to remember. That's how God's judgment is right. It's right towards the believers, it's right towards unbelievers. The when, the when. When does this happen? What we're reading about in this passage, when does this happen? Verse 10 says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. Now again, it's going to be appropriate for us to look at some different views on this. This is a, a position that we can disagree on. I'm going to show you my position. I'm going to show you why I believe this position. I believe this passage presents this position. You're free to believe what you want to believe about the timing of this passage. This isn't something that divides us in fellowship. But it is important when we come across these passages for us to address this. One reason, I think, is because we need to know our hope. We need to know our hope. I know Revelation and end times, eschatology stuff can be intimidating, but we need to know this stuff. God has talked about it continually in the New Testament. He's talked about it continually in the New Testament. And we have a responsibility to know it. Know it to the best that we can. And I can tell you right now that I know I can know it better than I know it now. Some things I think we won't know until Jesus comes back. But I'd like to be on the side that knows just about as much as we can know, except for what Jesus wants to reveal when he does come back. Right now, I'm not there. Right now, I don't want to be the guy in eternity that's saying, okay, what are we doing next? Like, what happens next? And God's like, I told you. I already told you. You should know what's happening next. It's the feeling that I get sometimes when people say, what time does this start? Like, what are we doing? And it's like, I posted that on the city. Like, I've already communicated that to you. You should know that. You should be aware of that. I want to be on the side that says, ah, I know what's coming next. Like, I, I did my homework, I studied this, God revealed this to me. I know what's coming. I'm not there yet, and, and I want to be there. So I want to encourage you, as intimidating as this stuff can be, God's revealed it. We have a responsibility to know it and to pursue it for the rest of our life, understanding our hope. Because this is what we're looking forward to. This is what we're looking forward to, the return of Jesus. Now, before we get into these views, I want to ask you a series of questions to kind of prep us for looking at this. Alright? Let's read through this passage again real quick. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. Now, everybody that I've come across believes this is about the second coming. This is the second coming. So, people like John MacArthur, who would believe in a rapture view, where Jesus comes before this as well, God like that would still say, this is not rapture, this is second coming. So when we read this, everybody across the board would say, this is a second coming passage about Jesus. Okay? Let me ask you this question. If you feel like you know a good answer, you can let me know. Who would you say gets glorified in this passage? Who gets glorified based on what we just read there? If somebody were to new believer comes to you and says, uh, Dan, Tyson, like, who, who, who's he talking about here? Who gets glorified in this passage? Who would we say? Who gets glorified in the sense of when it talks about the saints? Jesus gets glorified through his saints, but who, as far as Jesus' people, God's people, get glorified? Like the relief. Who's the relief coming to? Okay, those who believe the gospel. Everybody for all time has believed the gospel or a specific group? Be as specific as you can. Who are we talking about that gets relief here? Okay, people that are still living are people that get relief. Is that what some some of you would say? Some of you know what's coming in these views. Don't let it stir you away from what I know you believe. Who gets glorified in this passage? Some say people that are alive at that time. All who have believed, which would mean what, Sarah? Everybody who's ever believed, okay? Any other thoughts about who gets glorified here? <laughs> Alright, there's there's three different perspectives. There's people that are alive at that time. There's the perspective that everybody for all time. And there's the perspective that um, people that are alive at that time and some other people. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Those are the three major views on this. Alright? Who gets who gets vengeance dropped on them right here? Who gets vengeance dropped on them based on what we just read? Who would you say? I'm going to believe right now. Who's going to get punished when Jesus returns in the second place? Those who don't listen to the good news. Those that do not obey. Everybody that doesn't, that doesn't obey? People that are alive at that time? Alright, again, there's some, there's some differencing in views. There's some who would say all unbelievers for all time get punished here. There's others that would say only those that are alive at this time get punished here that are unbelievers. Okay? Third question, and then we'll look at the views and you can determine. Eh, I'm not sure what that um, The punishment says that they are what? Let's look at it again. Fire flame. They will, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 
Do you think they ever come back into the presence of the Lord if the judgment is they are put away from the presence of the Lord? Okay. I mean, I would look at it and say, no. Like, you don't go away, then come back, then go away again. Okay? Let me explain to you what the three different views that are probably mostly held, and I know mostly held in our church, would say about this passage. Okay? Now, some of you, I know, are still exploring these views, aren't fully aware of what each view believes. Okay? I want to tell you what these views believe. Okay? Uh, people that are far more educated than us that hold to these views believe this. So if you say, I believe this view, you're, you're necessarily saying, to the, to the, for the most part, that you believe this as well. Because this is what this view believes. Okay? The rapture view. The rapture view. This view would say that Jesus comes back for his church. Then there's seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus comes back for the second coming. Then there's a thousand year reign of Jesus on this earth. Okay? The rapture view. The rapture view would say that this passage, this relief that comes to the saints, is for tribulation saints, people that make it through the tribulation. So if you're trying to write this down, glorification. The glorification here is for tribulation saints. In Old Testament saints. It's for tribulation saints, Old Testament saints. The, the, the dispensational, what does it call the dispensational premillennial view that believes in a rapture says that at the rapture Jesus comes for people that were saved after Jesus and only people after Jesus. So when we talk about that resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's only people who were saved post-Jesus. Anybody in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, all those guys, they have to wait for their glorified bodies until this passage. At this time, Jesus comes for tribulation saints, which the belief is it's predominantly Jewish people, and then he resurrects Old Testament saints, predominantly Jewish people. And remember, it goes back to, do you believe Israel and the church is separate or, di- or are separate or the same? The dispensational rapture, he says, they're separate, so Jesus comes for the church at the rapture. Anybody that's Jewish, Old Testament, they have to wait until the second coming, then they get glorified by us. Okay? The punishment, the punishment is for tribulation rebels. So people that survive the tribulation that are in defiance against God, they get punishment here. But not full punishment. Full punishment happens a thousand years later because the rapture view says that basically they'll just be killed. Anybody that persecutes people, these Thessalonian persecutors, they're already dead. They will all be resurrected at the end of the thousand-year reign, where they will get their final punishment, eternity in heaven. Okay, so rapture, you would say this passage is really only for tribulation saints, Old Testament saints. The punishment is for people that are alive after the tribulation that don't like Jesus. But it's not final punishment. Their final punishment will come a thousand years later. Okay, the historic premillennial view. This is John Piper's view. This view says that glorification goes to all saints. Okay, so everybody, not tribulation saints, not people that are just alive. It's for everybody that's ever believed in Jesus. Relief comes to everybody. 
Well, he comes there about you get the passage in Revelation where people have been beheaded for their faith. They're saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our souls? So the indication is they're not really at rest yet. They're waiting for rest. Historic premillennial view would say this passage is for all believers. Everybody gets glorified here. The punishment, though, the punishment, though, is only for tribula- uh, only for um, people that are alive at that time. Because the historic premillennial view, John Piper's view, is that all unbelievers will be resurrected a thousand years later. Believers that are alive, anybody that's ever believed is glorified here. They get their new bodies there. The reason the rapture view says it's not for everybody is because they believe that we, the church, already have our glorified bodies. We would already have our glorified bodies. Okay? The amillennial view is going to be real simple. Okay? All believers get glorified, and all rebels get punished. They all happen at the same time. Everybody that's ever believed gets their glorified body here. They can enter into eternity. Anybody that's ever rebelled against God and not responded to the gospel, they all get punished here. Now here's here's the issues that I have with the first two views. In, In strictly relationship to this passage. If we go with the rapture view, that Jesus comes back for the church before this ever happens. Why in the world is Paul offering this as hope and comfort to people that will never, ever be here for this? If there's a rapture, Paul doesn't know when the rapture is. He doesn't know when the second coming is. But what he's talking about here, if the rapture is true, there ain't a chance in the world anybody from Thessalonica that's a Christian could be here for this. Because they're part of the church, right? So they would be gone. Their relief, their, their rest would come before this. So why would Paul write this passage to this church and say, look, keep enduring, because when Jesus returns at the second coming, he's bringing relief. He's bringing relief and he'll punish. Because technically their relief comes at the rapture. Now Paul writes in this way to say that you guys are going to be there potentially. He doesn't know if Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime or not. But he writes this passage as though he believes you guys could be there for this. You guys could be there for this. That's an issue I have with, with, the, with the potential rapture view. The, 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 the problem that I have with a thousand years happening after this, to believe the rapture or to believe in a, a literal thousand year reign, you have to believe that after this passage, after what we just read, that death continues, that fallen creation continues, that full rest won't happen for all believers, because there's going to be believers in the millennial reign, right? That, that view said that people get saved in the millennial reign. So this passage isn't the end because there's still more believers that will be persecuted in the millennial reign. And they'll need Jesus to deal with that a thousand years later. Um, the resurrection of unbelievers doesn't happen here, which means we don't have people going to hell for eternity. You'd also have to say, because... And I know some of this, like, you haven't looked at this, so it's like, what? The millennial view says that after Jesus comes back, some people get glorified, some people get killed, and then people that are still alive, that aren't glorified, 
live in this thousand year reign where death still happens. I have a hard time figuring out who's left to be alive in the millennial reign because when Jesus comes, I think the indication is that whoever's alive for sure, at a minimum, whoever's alive gets glorified, gets new bodies, we don't die anymore. And it really seems to indicate that the people that are inflicting vengeance, especially the ones that are alive at that time, are dead. They're punished. So it's like, who's alive still to go into this thousand-year reign that needs to respond to Jesus? Because it seems like it's been dealt with. To allow unbelievers to survive Jesus' second coming is to say that he doesn't bring full wrath on them like it sounds like he's going to do in this passage. To say that some believers don't get glorified really seems to go against this passage. Because it seems like that's what I'm supposed to be hoping for. That's what I'm supposed to be waiting for. Is for my glorified body to come when Jesus returns. Paul seems to think that the Thessalonian church could experience this. Which means they, they wouldn't be taken in a rapture. It seems to happen all at the same time. If you go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 verse 24. You put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do what you want. Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. You skip down to verse 36, Jesus explains this parable. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. See, for me, if I read that clear passage, it sounds like it happens at the same time. But when Jesus returns, just like we have described in 2 Thessalonians 1, that passage is very consistent with this. That Jesus returns, unbelievers are resurrected, those that are alive are brought before Jesus, they are punished, and they are moved away from the presence of God forever. It would be inconsistent, I think, from my knowledge, to say that Jesus has come... Here's unbelievers that have been persecuting my people. I'm going to kill them. The punishment that I'm supposed to give them is that they're away from my presence for eternity, except for the fact that I will bring them back into my presence a thousand years later, and then I'll remove them from my presence for eternity. It doesn't seem to mesh up with what Paul is saying in first and second Thessalonians. It seems like when Jesus comes, punishment is issued. The punishment is get out of my presence for eternity. Not until I summon you again and then put you back. Same for when he comes to give relief to his saints, to his believers. It seems to all happen at the same time. That when Jesus comes, just like 1 Thessalonians 4 says, 
Those that have already died come with him. They're resurrected. Those of us that are alive, we meet them in the air, and we're with him forever. And we're with him forever. That seems to be the natural reading to me of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in conjunction with other passages. Now, that's not to say that the view that I gave you last is without problems. There's issues, there's passages that seem to conflict potentially. There are less clear passages in my mind, though. To me, the amillennial view has zero problems with clear passages. The unclear passages, prophetic stuff in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation, there's things that are difficult to understand. But when it comes to clear passages, it's the natural reading to me of the New Testament. That Jesus comes one more time, he brings judgment on those that don't believe, he brings relief to those that do. You don't have to believe that way. Again, that's something that, that I don't want to ever divide us here at this church, but... Going through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we talk a lot about eschatology, and so we have to address it. Um, but I encourage you across the board to study this. Study these views. See what's most consistent with Scripture, and hold to that. And we can find unity in what we can agree on. The fact that Jesus is coming back. The punishment will happen to unbelievers, whether it's in stages or all at one time. Relief is coming to believers, whether it's in stages or all at one time. Those are the things that we can find comfort, hope, and encouragement and unity. But, for the mutual upbuilding of the faith, it is important that we look at some of this stuff when it's relevant to the text. So I wanted to look at the when today a little bit more. We've done some in the past as well. Any questions about that before we move on? Clarification that you need on what a view believes or what I said about a view. Because I believe through that, like you read all the books that I read and you know. So... What seems clear to me in my explanation may not be clear to you. Any questions about how these views relate to this passage that I'm clarifying? Alright. The who. The who in our passage. We looked at this in depth last week. We won't spend a lot of time here. There's two groups. What determines these groups? The who, there's two groups here. What determines the groups that we're in? It's how we respond to knowledge that we have. It's how we respond to knowledge that we have. Relief comes to those who respond to the knowledge that they have in belief and obedience. Punishment and vengeance comes upon those who reject the knowledge that they have and disobey. Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the judge. He will judge us based on how we respond to the knowledge that we have. And we already said, I think the, the punishment will be issued based on the amount of knowledge that we have. And just to kind of throw this in there, Anytime somebody who has limited knowledge wants to know more about Jesus, God always provides that knowledge, even if it takes supernatural means. We've got examples of Barnabas in Scripture. Um, Cornelius in Scripture, sorry. Cornelius in Scripture. He has not been informed yet about Jesus really being the Messiah. God sends a supernatural vision to Peter, says, you need to go tell Cornelius about Jesus. You need to go tell Cornelius about him. You need to clarify to him what's going on here in the New Testament. 
You've got the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the Bible and he says, I don't know what this means. Philip is supernaturally brought to him and supernaturally taken away from him. He's there long enough to get the gospel to him. I think those two incidences assure us that the hypothetical, what if there's a guy overseas that doesn't have the Bible and he wants to be saved, but he doesn't know how to be saved, will he go to hell? We don't have that. That never happens. God never lets somebody go to hell that wants to be in a relationship with him. Okay? So if there's a guy overseas who wants to know more, all he's got is general revelation, God always sends the missionary. The missionary always makes it. Okay, so we don't have to worry. You know, God's not being good because he's letting people die without the gospel. We talked a lot about this last week. I don't want to repeat this information. What I do want to draw you to is a, a short statement here at the end of 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 10. Let's come back to this question because I really want to close with this. So skip the question in your notes. Go down to the why. Glory. The why is for glory. Will you marvel on that day? Perseverance leads to salvation. Persecution leads to divine judgment. Together they lead to God's glory. It's important to know that God's glorified by everything that takes place on that day. He's glorified in exercising his judgment on unbelievers. It brings glory to him. It's the right thing for him to do. He receives glory when he glorifies his saints and they marvel at him on that day and they rejoice in him on that day and for every other day that happens in the future. God is glorified ultimately. The persecution leads to salvation. Or, yeah, perseverance leads to salvation. Persecution leads to divine judgment. Those that persevere are saved. Those that persecute are judged. Together, they lead to God's glory. And if we want to, we can tie it all back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. God made a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham that I believe he intends to keep for all eternity. Those that are descendants of Abraham, those that truly respond to faith in the gospel, they're blessed for eternity. But God says, I will curse those who curse you. I will send them to eternal judgment away from my presence. Okay? The question for you that I want to leave you with, and we kind of wrap it up with this. Second Thessalonians 1.10 says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. Paul says, You guys will be there that day because I've testified to you and you believe. My question for you individually and my question for our church Will there be anybody on that day receiving relief? Because you or our church testified to him in Jesus. Will there be anybody on that day receiving relief because you or our church testified to him of Jesus? I 
think you should meditate on this question and you get ready to leave today. Because it would be a mistake for us to think of this in individual terms and say, I'm going to be there. I'm getting relief on that day. What an encouraging passage. Amen. Like, that's awesome. Jesus is coming back. He's going to get rid of all those that have been bad to me. He's going to bring relief to me. What a glorious day that's going to be. It would be a mistake to think of this passage simply about you individually. Because Paul's writing this to this church and he says, you will experience that because you believe my testimony to you. The indication is that this church has flipped sides from being on the wrong side to the right side because Paul came to them and communicated the gospel to them. And what a tragedy it would be is if our church continues to just be this, and that day happens, and we're there, but nobody's there because they believe our testimony. In our men's theology this past week, we talked about is if anybody that any of us have ever sat down with and truly led to Jesus, but still following Jesus today. And, and our table was silent. I mean, we didn't really have a whole lot to pull from. We didn't have a whole lot of examples of, man, I should have gotten to this guy. He got saved still following Jesus today. We had a few examples of maybe falling on the wrong kind of ground. And I should have gotten to this guy. I thought he got saved, but he didn't. He's not following Jesus today. We didn't have really any concrete examples of people that we could say, that guy's going to be there on that day because I personally sat down with him and shared the gospel. Now, I know some of you have gotten saved under the ministry of what we've done here or done at Mount Gilead. But when it comes down to like individual conversation, calling people to repentance and faith, we didn't really have any examples. Now, there may be some examples of people that, that weren't at Eastern Theology Night. Like we might have... Women that are the prime examples, champions of faith, that are massive soul women. But I would venture to say that it's probably consistent across the board for our church. We might have one or two examples at the most. This year, 2013, we're done getting set up in this building. As leadership, we want to lead our church in, in really making a difference in this area. We want to become mission-minded because we said in the past we, we want to get there. We can't get there yet. We've got to establish this church. We've got to get everything set up. It's done. Like we don't. I mean, we don't need to do anything else. We've got to be intentional individually. We've got to be intentional corporately to reach people for Jesus, or else we miss the point of this passage. That we read this and we should say, I want to increase the amount of people that are there getting relief on that day. I want to increase the amount of people. Paul increased the number because he planted the church in Thessalonica. We haven't increased the number by planting a church in Sonoma. We brought everybody with us. Everybody was saved. I don't think, I don't think anybody, to my knowledge, has gotten saved since we started talking about it. I want to be on that day saying, man, group over there, they're here because our church Testimony. We shared our testimony. We responded to it. I want that to be the case. Otherwise, what we're doing it just doesn't make sense. I want to encourage you to be intentional to embrace this as a corporate responsibility. That means when people come in to visit our church, people that we don't know if they're saved or unsaved, we've got to be intentional to, to, to meet them, to talk to them. 
There's times when I, when I talk to you guys and be like, you know, someone's telling me, like, you're like, I don't, I don't think I've met that person yet. And there's really no excuse for us not to know everybody's name in this room at this point. And today's a good day because we don't really have anybody that is what I would classify visitor from this area. I mean, everybody here has expressed to some extent a, a desire to be members. So you guys have been here for a while. And Kyle's not here today. Ms. Carolyn's not here today. People that have started visiting since we even got into the building. I want to encourage you to be mindful of the fact that if somebody comes into our church, we don't know if they're saved or not. Granted, there's going to be a lot of believers that probably visit our church over this, the course of this year. But we don't know that. You know, and, and it's as simple as saying, I'm going to hang out in this room when I get here. This is where the visitors come, right? And when somebody visits our church that doesn't really come to anybody, they come and sit in here. And, it, and it, you know, a lot of us, we hang out in that room, we hang around the coffee table, we hang out in the, in the kids' area. And there's visitors that sometimes we invite to get ready to start the service, and there's only visitors in here. We have to go get all the members to come in here so we can start. You know, it's simple as just identifying that I'm going to be in here, because this is where the visitors are going to be if we have a visitor. I'm going to meet them, I'm going to find out who they are, what's their history, are they saved, are they not saved? That's just something simple corporately that we can start doing. And then individually, I want to challenge you to identify people that, that you have gone far too long without sharing the gospel. We made a commitment as men on Thursday night for that, for that group that was there. We said, you know what? This is unacceptable that we don't have experiences of sharing the gospel really even talking about. We're talking hypotheticals. And we made a commitment that night to revisit that topic in a few weeks and to come back with some data that we could actually talk about. And I, and I sent a text message to this guy saying, look, I'm gonna, I want to lead you guys in this. I contacted a buddy of mine that, that I grew up with. We haven't really talked and hung out in years. I mean, probably 15 years. And within the last, within the last year, we started seeing each other again. And this guy comes from a rough past. I mean, you name it, I mean, it's, it, it's bad. He doesn't claim to be a, a follower of these guys. And in response to Thursday night, I was like, I, I typed a text message to him because I knew I wasn't ready to call him. I just typed a text message. You know, stared at it for a while, but I was scared to send it, letting know what he was going to respond to. I just said, hey man, would you ever consider getting together with me and talking about spiritual things? And I sent it to him, and then he texted me back and he said, it was a time in my life where I would have never considered this, but within the last year or two, I'm really open to, to discussing those types of things. So I have no idea where that conversation is going to go. But what I know is if I'm going to be your pastor, I've got to lead you guys in this. I can't just stand up here and tell you guys to share the gospel and then not faithfully do it myself. But I would say all of us have examples of people that we know, 99% sure are not believers, but we also know that we really haven't shared the gospel. What we talked about on Thursday night as well, too. Some of us are faithful to communicate what the gospel is. Like We're okay with talking about Jesus, but we rarely get to the point where we call somebody to repentance and faith. We might tell them about Jesus, but then we just kind of cut it off and say, you know, let me know if you have any more questions about that. Rarely do we ever say, we repent. Peter believed. And that's the consistent thing that you always see in the New Testament. Peter and Paul and these guys, whenever we have narrative descriptions of them sharing the gospel, they get to the end and they say, we need to repent and believe in this. We need to baptize. We need to do this. 
that's a challenge for me. But I share the gospel a lot at school. I know he's unbelievers at school, so I know I'm sharing the gospel. But I don't do it enough individually. And I certainly don't do it before I call people to repentance. But I want to leave you guys with that thought from this passage. It's all about Jesus coming back. It's all about relief. It's all about vengeance coming from the right judge. We can disagree about when it happens, and that's fine. I don't have all the answers, and I've admitted before. There's going to be things that I'm wrong about the Bible on Judgment Day. This might be one of them. But what we can agree on is that Paul says, you guys are there because I, I, I did my job. I shared the gospel with you. The Holy Spirit did everything else. And I want us to make sure that, that we can, at worst, at worst, I want to be able to say, I shared, there's nobody here that responded to my message, but I shared it all the time. I just happen to always throw it on bad ground. You know, going back to the store, terrible. I, I mean, I spread a ton of seed. It just happened to fall on, on bad ground. I told the guys on Thursday, I spent too much time looking at my seed, talking about my seed, but not really casting my seed. We're moving to 2013. I want our church to be faithful to the mission of our church. I pray that you guys will, will get behind that vision. God, I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for the, the clear truth that is communicated. That we can trust in the fact that despite any difficulties that we're going through right now, you're going to make it right in the end. People that harm us, people that persecute us, people that hurt us. God, we all have those people in our life that have done that. God, we can trust that you're either going to save them here and now or you're going to make it right on the day it doesn't. God, I pray that I would provide comfort to you as constantly. God, that we can even echo what Romans 12 tells us to do. We don't try to be vengeful ourselves. That we love our enemies, we serve our enemies, we pray for those that persecute us. But we don't have to inflict vengeance and justice because you will at the appropriate time and the appropriate time. God, I pray that we would long for that day, that we would look forward to that day. But God, that we would never want to be there individually on that day. I pray that you would ignite a, a passion in our hearts to, to say, I want to be there with my group of people. People that, that I shared the gospel with, that responded, that I discipled. I want to be able to present them wholly and blameless, like Paul talks about in First Testament. God, I pray that we wouldn't see that as a responsibility of an elder or a pastor, just because Paul held those positions. Now we see that as our individual responsibilities as Christ followers. We need other people to follow Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to see that you already give us opportunities every day to share the gospel. Father, help us not to fall prey and thinking that we need to pray for opportunities because you give them to us. And they're there. We know people that need you. And I pray that you be proactive to give them to do whatever it takes to share the gospel and call them to the Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.